And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Imagine the reigning F1 champion falling out with his team, quitting F1 entirely and storming off to IndyCar, then going on to win on his debut, fight for victory at the Indy 500 and win the championship, all while doing most of his winning on ovals rather than road courses. In the modern day, that seems unthinkable, yet 30 years ago, that's exactly what happened when Nigel Mansell sensationally followed up his 1992 F1 championship by winning the IndyCar title as a rookie the following year. For one week before Alain Prost sealed the 1993 F1 crown, Mansell held both championships. Back then, Nigel wondered aloud when such an achievement might happen again, and 30 years on, it seems less likely than ever to be repeated. There are, of course, no V10 engines on the IndyCar grid, but we're making an exception to do an episode about a golden era of US single-seater racing. And whether you know the story of Mansell's remarkable 1993 or not, we hope you'll enjoy hearing it get the full Bring Back V10s treatment with Ed Straw and Karun Chanduk joining me, Glenn Freeman, to take a look back. Now, Karun, you and Ed were both fiercely keen to be on this episode. So tell us, when you think back to... Nigel Mansell's 1993 IndyCar season. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The crash at Phoenix and then the amazing recovery to, um, which culminated for me, not necessarily when he won the championship at Nazareth, but when he won that amazing race uh, in Michigan and on a, on a you know, bumpy, fearsome oval. It had everything uh, that you'd imagine from Mansell. Yeah, there's lots of points in this episode where we could stop off and say, well, that's just classic Mansell. Uh, Ed, when I put this question out on Twitter, you responded with a picture of Mansell swimming with dolphins, which I think was before the first race in Australia. Are you sticking with that answer? Well, it was the thing that was in my mind at the time because that footage turned up constantly in the various Mansell diary programs, the Surface Paradise race coverage and that kind of thing, but not really in the spirit of the answers. But Mansell did seem to be having a lovely time, got on famously with the Dolphins. But yeah, the first thing you think of, it's all about the strong association with the time of just a sense of enlightenment about IndyCar. Obviously, I was a 12, 13-year-old, big fan of F1 and other motorsport, vaguely familiar with IndyCar, but it was this very alien, almost invisible world. It was there on the pages of Autosport magazine, but I couldn't watch it. And it wasn't until Mansell was out there and you had some terrestrial TV coverage in the UK through the, the diary programmes that you started to get a feel for it. And then initially, I remember feeling a little bit sceptical about it, thinking, oh, this is a bit regressive compared to F1, et cetera, et cetera. But then very quickly, you get to know the tracks, the drivers, the culture, the cars, like the Americans, even the American sports casting style that was quite new to me and yeah just very quickly fell in love with it so yeah it's not just because of Mansell but really I think it's the foundation of, of my great love of IndyCar to this day so my answer is a general feeling of enlightenment is the first thing that comes to mind. That's a good one uh, let's hear from those of you who or some of you who responded to this post on Twitter because there were loads 
Uh, on the on the same note as Ed there, Andy Campbell says, discovering IndyCar for the first time only a year after discovering F1. Mansell was champ in both my first F1 and IndyCar seasons. Um, to hear from some more of you who said similar things, Phil Kinch says, being introduced to a new form of single-seater motorsport that had me hooked since 1993. Daniel Ingleton says his dad bought the season review from that year and he's been glued to IndyCar ever since from the UK. And Glenn Penfold, who spells his name correctly with two N's, I must say, says introducing me to IndyCar for the first time. Madsell's debut win at Surfers Paradise was a popular one. We had that from Philly T101, uh, Olivier, David Handy and Brett Bishop, who was one of a few people to mention that they were there in person that weekend, which I'm very jealous of. Lots of you, like Karun, mentioned the horrible crash at Phoenix, including Thomas Knights, Phil Bates, Dan Housen, Mark Whitehead. And Jason Jackson says, thinking years later that if Mansell had done Phoenix, he'd have learnt the restart and would not have got done on the Indy 500 restart. We'll cover that in some detail later. And Paul Stubbs says, being absolutely gutted that he didn't win the Indy 500. Mark1219 says, our Nige finally showing the world just how good he was. And Chris Fielder says, this story has so much that it should be made into a movie. Uh, I would say yes, or at least a mega sort of Netflix documentary series. I would definitely watch that. And uh, I can tell you, I think um, researching this episode took a very long time. And uh, I've got about 20,000 words of research. Um, so, yeah, we're on for one of our longer episodes here. Um if you want to reminisce like that at any time you like, not just when when we're doing an episode, then the Bring Back V10's Twitter community is made for you. Come join more than a thousand like-minded others to discuss anything you want from the V10 era and a bit of classic IndyCar chat is fine too. To join the group, just check out the link in the description of this episode. And if you wish, you could get early access to every episode of the show, plus bonus content and other benefits from the race, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. Now, as we close in on the end of Series 8, that, of course, means we'll soon be answering your questions about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. You can submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. I'm not calling it X. Or, uh, or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. Now, lastly, before we get going, one of the memories we had sent in for this topic came from Cy Lloyd, who says, strangely, the theme tune and staying up late at night to watch it too. Ed's nodding. Um, I'm pretty sure Cy means the theme tune that we had in the UK to follow all of Mansell's exploits. So to give us a slightly different flavour, before we head into the meat of this episode, let's play that music. Start your engines. Okay, well, that was awesome. Maybe we need intro music for every episode now. Um, let's crack on. There were there were two big talking points around Mansell in pre-season. One was how good was he going to be on track? The other was how much of an impact his presence was going to make on IndyCar racing 
off track. We'll start with the on track stuff. There was lots of talk about how Mountsell would handle the diversity of the IndyCar schedule, which featured races on permanent road circuits, lots of street tracks, and of course the ovals. Mansell's engineer Jim McGee predicted during testing that Nigel would be as competitive on the ovals as he will be on the road courses. Established IndyCar racer Scott Goodyear's engineer Tim Wardrop expected Mansell to win everything except the ovals. And as a fun fact, actually, while we're talking about Goodyear, Newman Haas had to negotiate with Goodyear's team to get the use of Red 5 for Mansell as Goodyear had finished fifth the previous season, so he was set to run that number. Mansell downplayed talk of how competitive he was going to be. He told veteran US journalist Gordon Kirby before the first race at Surfers Paradise that he disagreed with people suggesting he could win straight away. He said the pressure was on the established IndyCar frontrunners and he was just the wild card. Meanwhile, Michael Andretti, who'd vacated the seat Mansell took so he could make his doomed switch to McLaren in Formula One for 1993, said that he knew... He'd have had the chance to win every race if he'd stayed in IndyCar that year. So he expected Mansell to reap the benefits of all his hard work. Karun, I think it's fair to say that the summary was everybody had a different opinion on this. What do you think were realistic expectations for Mansell heading into the season? I think everyone expected him to be strong on the road courses because obviously that was his background of you know European racing and Formula One. And um, I think... At the time, IndyCar was was seen as a very strong competitive championship. You know, it was uh, even now looking back, you know, many people reflect on that era as being the heyday, really. Um, You know, the late mid to late 80s into the early 90s, you had proper factory teams, engine wars. You had, you know, different chassis and and different combinations of engines and chassis as well. So it it was a seriously um, competitive series. And I think... People, you know, so I thought, yeah, you know, it'll take him a while to get used to winning on ovals. If you look at the previous five champions before 92, so uh, so not including 92, it'd been five different winners and all of them had done at least five years. You know, the, so the thought of a rookie coming in and being champion straight away, I don't think anyone expected. Let's move on then to the impact off track. Uh, Team boss Carl Haas described Mansell's first oval test at Phoenix as a real eye-opener and a revelation, adding, I knew he was going to be big news, but I didn't realise how big. So let's get a first-hand perspective on that test. Long-time IndyCar reporter Kurt Cavin now works for the series, and back in 1993, he was at this Phoenix test, covering it for the Indianapolis Star. So here's what he remembers of how quickly the magnitude of Mansell's arrival became clear. I think we knew from the very first test at Phoenix, it it was a, a contingent of reporters. Uh, normally, if you're at a test, as I've been at many over the years, you might see three or four people, uh, hardcore journalists, uh, maybe some magazine reporters, maybe maybe a couple from the local uh, paper, wherever you're testing, but you, you know, maybe five or six, you had like 90. <laughs> Michael Knight uh, was doing public relations for the, for the Newman Haas team. And he counted and, and, and I remember the number was 90 people from nine different countries at this test in Phoenix. So you, you know, normally you might've had five or six to have 90 plus television cameras 
you know, it was a pretty special day there in Phoenix and, and, um, you know, to experience that and to see what a big deal, you know, just a test would bring. And then he ran well, um, was comfortable and, and had no issues on his first test. I think that was, that was the first sign, you know, we saw a glimmer of that just a few years ago. If you, if the younger listeners, uh, know what a big impact Fernando Alonso had in 2017. You can multiply that by about three um, because with Nigel, because Nigel was the reigning world champion. Uh, he was kind of the first in in couple decades from to come to from Formula One to do this. His, his star power was was off the charts, and there really hasn't been anyone like that. But I mean, as as they said at the time. Uh, Nigel was Elvis when Elvis was king. I mean, it, that's how big uh, it was, and we really haven't seen anything like that since. Fascinating stuff from Kurt there, and we'll hear from him a few more times in this episode to bring a US perspective on everything that was going on. And if you want to hear my chat with him in full, we'll make that available uncut in the feed for the Race Members Club. Now, Ed, uh, unlike Kurt, none of us were based in North America while this was happening. But from the other side of the world, how obvious was it that Mansell was going to have a, a transformative effect on the profile, the global profile of IndyCar racing? Yeah, I think it was clear it was going to bring a huge amount of attention. And there was so much talk about it over the winter and in the build-up to the season, the interest in testing, etc., etc. So from that perspective, I think the profoundness of his impact was clear but I think there was also another thing that's not just the the profile of it but the longer term impact if you like in terms of bringing it more into the global mainstream I'm talking more from a European perspective here in that IndyCar wasn't a backwater it was respected it was well known that it did have international drivers etc but I think the contribution the Mansell effect had on what was to follow in the 90s was very difficult to foresee certainly it didn't seem obvious that would be the case so it's funny you had this, this dual effect, the obvious short-term world champion going to IndyCar, and then also the, the more intangible elements whereby his influence would echo through the years, I think, in, in, in IndyCar. So, yeah, short-term effects, easy to anticipate. Longer-term effects, less so. But it was a massive, massive story. Mansell couldn't have had a, a more dramatic and successful first weekend as an IndyCar driver. On the streets of Surfers Paradise in Australia, he started on pole fell to fourth on the opening lap, got black flagged for passing under yellow flags, was able to serve a penalty by making a regular pit stop slightly early, uh, which confused the hell out of me when I was researching this, and uh, and made an extra stop because he had a puncture, then came in for a splash and dash near the end, won the race and ran out of fuel just after crossing the finish line. That made Mansell the first driver to win from pole on his IndyCar debut, which he wasn't aware of initially, but he said that made his first race extra special. Mansell said after the race that he was surprised how physical the cars were and he'd learned in the race that if you overdrive, you just go slower. He also called the series a breath of fresh air coming over from the world I've come from. No, he didn't name F1. And he said IndyCar had great racing. On the subject of being in IndyCar as the reigning F1 champion, Mansell admitted to Motorsport magazine in 2009 that he found it difficult to not be defending his F1 title in 1993, and he said IndyCar wasn't my chosen path. In his mid-90s autobiography, uh, he wrote that after winning the opening race, I realised the championship might well be on. 
Karun, I mean, you've already mentioned it, uh, but this first race was as dramatic as you might expect for a Nigel Mansell victory. Um, yeah, as that, that description sounds fake that I gave the race. But more importantly, was it a shock for him to win first time out? It's one thing to be competitive, but to actually win. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think less of a shock once he'd taken pole position. But I think, um, you know, for him to arrive there on on a street circuit, you know, so it's not one where you can go testing in advance and, and get up to speed. So he took pole, had a bit of a shaky start, you know, first, you know, maybe first time of doing a, a rolling start, got mugged by the two Penske's on the opening lap and then Robbie Gordon's, you know, snuck by. But by lap 15, he chipped away, chipped away, got in front and... Yes, he got the drive-through penalty and stuff, but it, once he hit the front, he never looked like he was out of control. You know, he looked like the dominant driver of that day. Um, it was a superb performance. It, it genuinely, I think, is is right up there with one of the best, um, you know, crossover performances we've seen of a driver in any category going to another one and, and achieving success. I get the impression that Mansell perhaps wasn't as surprised as he made out to win first time out. His preparation was very thorough. He did a lot of work. He was studying the videos, etc., trying to understand who he was racing up against. Did a lot of the, the preparation and testing, really focused in terms of adapting to the car. You mentioned that thing about not overdriving. I think there tends to be a bit of a, a kind of stereotypical view that these cars were less well refined, so you could kind of haul them round and people think, oh, well, of course that would work for Mansell. But actually, yeah, he was really, really... Um, quick to understand that these were cars that you had to work with and be very precise with as well and you see that there's various qualifying laps on on youtube you can watch i think the surfers one there's footage from mid ohio is another one that springs to mind and you can see the driving style isn't that mantle stereotype at all he really understands that you needed to keep that car kind of in line and not monster it too much because if you started getting out of shape the momentum and the weight would just sort of carry you too far so yeah, winning first time was a bit of a surprise, but I think I think Mansell went into it with that mindset, and I think the rigorousness with which he approached it, and the fact he didn't underestimate the challenge, also fed into that. So, yeah, I think I think it wouldn't have surprised him not through arrogance, but just through how thorough he'd been in approaching it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Mansell's next challenge was to take on his first oval race weekend back at Phoenix, where he'd run so well in testing in front of the world's media. And he was running well again, setting the pace on the Saturday when he lost control and spun backwards into the wall. This was a violent accident that punched a big hole in the concrete wall and left a crease in the back of Mansell's helmet. He was knocked unconscious for 30 minutes and flown to hospital by a helicopter. We'll get on to the injuries in a moment, but first let's talk about the crash. Mansell wrote in his book that he'd started running higher and higher in the corners, or for those of you not familiar with oval racing terms, wider and wider, because he was finding more speed by running that line. But he was around 20 laps into his run and the right rear tyre was starting to overheat, giving him a more oversteery balance. Then Nigel ran a bit too wide, got out of the racing line groove and into the dirty part of the track, lost the rear end, sending him into the wall. Mansell said joining the Concrete Wall Club was an experience I will never forget. He also said, I had learned a big lesson about ovals. You have to work with the car, getting it to work for you rather than the other way around, which is what I was used to in Formula One. I was used to driving at 110%, but on an oval, you need to remain at 95% and not go beyond it. Karun. Mansell referenced the famous saying in American racing that there are two types of driver, those who have hit the wall and those who are going to. Was it inevitable that at some point during this season he was going to have a big oval shunt? Yeah, I think so. You know, we I think that the quote he's he's mentioned there is is still apt even today, right? Look at Fernando Alonso. Yeah. You know, we, we saw have a shunt as well. So that, but I think nobody expected it to happen maybe that early. In the year, you, you sort of expect this sort of thing to unfold during the month of May at Indianapolis because they're just pounding around there for so long. Um, but it was a massive impact. I remember seeing the cover of Autosport, wasn't it, with those flames, you know, the car sort of half in the wall and that picture of the flames across the cover. Um, but it's just classic Mansell, isn't it? You know, arrive, bang, pole, win the first race, then in the wall, in hospital, missing the race. You know, um, the number of stitches he's got is sort of questionable, depending on how many, you know, depending on which interview of his you listen to. Um, (laughs) But there's no questioning the fact that he was very badly injured, you know, and and having to drain fluids from his back for weeks after that, you know, especially even at the next race at Long Beach um, that he took part in. So um, to recover from an injury of that level, I think, most drivers would be out for a lot longer than that. But Nigel, you know, we saw throughout his F1 career, he was hard as nails uh, in many ways. He'd make, you, he'd make everyone aware of the fact that uh, he'd had the injury, <laughs> but you could not for one second falter the man's bravery and commitment to the cause. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the reasons he had the shunt so early. It's, it's not the Nigel Mansell way to build up to it on ovals, is he? You know, he was uh, he considered himself a championship contender by then, so he's out there leading the way in practice. 
The initial prognosis was that Nigel might only have had a concussion from this, but it soon became clear he'd suffered severe back injuries. Famed IndyCar doctor Steve Olvey wrote in his book that Mansell's injury was one he'd never seen before, where he was accumulating fluid in his back because of the tremendous shearing forces in the accident had torn the fat and muscle away from the bone and flesh of his lower back. Olvey said his fellow doctor Terry Trammell would name this injury the Mansell lesion and he said the only description of a similar injury that they could find was from a pathologist who described it in the deceased victims in plane crashes. And uh, he said there was so much fluid collecting in Mansell's back that it required draining daily, as Karun mentioned, and doctors were often draining one litre of fluid each time. Now, Ed, we've, we've already had a bit of a chuckle about Nigel, perhaps, well, as Karun put it, making everyone aware when he's got an injury. Uh, the Matt Beers of this world might occasionally accuse Nigel of over-egging some things about his physical condition from time to time. But that's not the case here, is it? This, this is this accident and what happened afterwards, it's all just pure violence. Well, you never completely know with Nigel Mansell because he did, I think, revel in feeling a little bit under the cosh and massively up against it. But it's also probably part of his coping mechanism because he took a hell of a beating throughout his career. Some very big accidents in, in his time. And that Phoenix crash is slightly different difficult to conceptualise because it wasn't an orthopaedic injury or anything so it's quite easy to say well he hasn't broken anything or done this so it, it's very easy to make it sound like it was uh, exaggerating because it was it was just a soft tissue injury but if you uh, if you watch um, some of the diary uh, one of the diary videos I think it's in they do talk about this and actually they show the x-ray where you can see the the sort of fluid filled sack where there's blood and other unpleasantness that has to be drained and it looks horrible and you can imagine grim. trying to sit on that just the discomfort and the it would just be horrendous and just the unpleasantness of having it drained constantly and he he said he had to have sort of little pipework structure put in there to help help drain it and once again, like the number of stitches, the size of it tended to grow with every retelling. But you can look at the x-ray and it's it's big. It's pretty horrendous. And I think uh, anyone who's ever had any uh, any minor, sort of small infection could, uh, could have some sympathy for that. So, yeah, it required a lot of determination and it would have caused problems having that. And, yeah, as Karun said, could very easily have, uh, uh, have missed several races. But it was all about the, the way the crash happened because the gearbox punched the concrete wall, punched through the concrete wall. So that sort of retained the car as it sort of rotated and snapped round. So that was the uh, the kind of shearing effect that, that you referred to. So that sort of wrenched everything, which is why it was such a, a weird injury and sounds, yeah, very unpleasant and painful. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let Mansell uh, have this one. I don't think he needed to overdo it much on this one. Yeah, agreed. And that's a good point about the accident. Yeah, he, he didn't crash along the barrier, did he? He crashed into it, which is which is horrendous. Uh, and not the sort of thing you'd see today with uh, the safer barriers on ovals, fortunately. Now, despite the severity of the accident and the, the ongoing dramas uh, that Mansell was suffering, as Karun mentioned, next time out at Long Beach, he's back. And uh, Mansell said in his book that he was anxious not to miss any more races. He added, uh, I believe that given a few breaks, I could carry the momentum of the 1992 championship and clinch a historic double. I badly needed to keep scoring points to keep that hope alive. So Madsen went to Long Beach with fluid being drained out of his back every day at the circuit. His engineer, Jim McGee, later said that the build-up uh, fluid was getting so big that it was creating a pouch in Mansell's back that was getting bigger and bigger. And uh, Jim McGee said watching Dr. Olvey drain it with a long needle was a nasty deal. 
Mansell told himself that if he was more than a second and a half off the pace, he wouldn't race. So what did he do? He took pole. On, uh, on race day, he finished third behind Paul Tracy and Bobby Rahal, uh, which Nigel reckoned would have been at least second if he'd not lost second gear with 35 laps to go. Let's hear a little bit more about this from the man himself. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times already, Nigel released a series of videos about his season in 1993, the most famous of which was called Mansell and Newman Haas that summarised the whole season. And when reflecting with IndyCar commentator Paul Page on his condition at Long Beach, this is what Nigel said. I was in a lot of discomfort. I was being drained off twice a day. That's to say needles were being punched into my back and we're draining off uh, upwards of half a pint to a pint of fluid, uh, you know, every day. And, and I must confess now that on Saturday and Sunday uh, I had neat anaesthetic pumped into the bottom of my back to just make it completely numb. Uh, but that was a problem. It was a good thing from the point of view of pain and I could then drive the car. The problem was I couldn't feel the car because the whole lower part and, and the one time the actual numbness came down to my knees. So from my knees upwards probably into my chest I couldn't feel any part of my back or, or bottom and therefore all the bumps and sensations that were coming through the car I couldn't feel them. Matsu expanded on this in his book saying that he felt he drove better after about an hour of the race when the anaesthetic started to wear off and he got some feeling back for what the car was doing. Corinne, uh, Unlike Ed and I, you've raced single-seaters on street tracks. Can you try to explain to us how difficult it must have been to haul an Indy car around Long Beach without being able to feel it? I, I mean, incredibly difficult because so much of the, the sensation you get from the way the car is moving around with the bumps and, um, you know, especially on a track like Long Beach where... Uh, it, it is just bumpy everywhere, you know. I think you've you got you to position the car and sometimes in a way that you know when it lands off a bump, it lands at a particular angle and you're ready, you know, that that moment when it lands, you need to feel that through your backside and catch the moment when it lands with with your hands and feet and balance the car. So to be able to drive around there, you know, without having that feeling um, must have been hugely challenging. Uh, and the, But, the you know, this just shows the raw talent of the guy that he was able to still you know, drag himself into contention um, and be competitive at that weekend. And so much of, of Nigel's success, I think, you know, going back to his, um, you know, his, his William De Williams days even, uh, has come from driving through the pain. You know, he, he's a kind of, I feel like that's one of the complexities of his personality and his character is, um, you know, he, he enjoys that thing of, when my back's against the wall and the world is against me and everything is against me, I, I rise to the challenge and take another step. Uh, and I, I almost feel like, um, you know, the injuries that he carried into Long Beach, it, it would have just given him that extra sort of mental focus into achieving the success he needed um, in the car. Yeah, when his back's against the wall and it's full of fluid that needs to be drained out, um, he, he steps up to the plate. Mansell was uh, involved in a controversial incident in this race when he collided with Long Beach specialist Alonso Jr. coming out of the old first chicane, which put Little Al out of the race. 
Answer wasn't happy about his cl the clash, calling it BS on live TV that Mansell didn't know he was there. Later on, he said he'd never seen anybody block like Mansell did, and uh, he accused Mansell of parking him against the wall. Mansell said at the time that Answer knows my reputation, I'm not going to move over, and he said he didn't think anyone could make a pass in the short run between turns two and three. He said in his book that Al put himself out of the race, and Nigel added that he was having to pay so much attention to what he was doing in the car that he never considered that he might try a pass there. Mansell called the whole incident regrettable, and he said that he and Answer Jr. soon became good friends once they resolved their differences. Uh, so, Ed, let's let's analyse a racing incident then, shall we? And what did you make of this? And to use a modern F1 phrase, was anyone predominantly to blame? Yeah, as long as we know how to use the modern F1 standards and guidelines, which seem to have become very confused, but that's uh, another story. You mean make it up as you go along? Well, or just apply very 2D regulations to a 3D world. But, uh, yeah, I won't get into, <laughs> into that. But uh, it is a racing accident because... Little Al is taking a risk there. He's going into a gap that's closing. There's no escape route to bail out of it. He was legitimately there. There was no problem with him doing that. It's just it's risk versus reward, isn't it? And Unser Jr. was gambling, firstly, on the fact that Mansell saw him, and secondly, gave him cooperation. I just don't think that was playing the percentages. Yeah, Mansell squeezed into him, that's clear, but there's two people involved, and yeah, you, you, you just miscalculate that risk versus reward. I think Al Jr. was a bit frustrated by the, the defending from Mansell. He'd also had a difficult run, so he was very eager because he sensed there was a, a race he could, he could win here, maybe got a bit over eager. And, and it was Long Beach as well, and he's the king of Long Beach, isn't he? He was in, in the midst of a run of six wins in eight years there. I think he'd already had four. So a little impatient. So I'm largely, in agreement with with Mansell's uh, with Mansell's estimation of it, because even if he did know Answer Junior was there, which only he knows, he'd have thought, well, fine, more fool you for going there. So, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I have no particular problem with uh, with the way that one played out, and I think probably there was a bit of an element with Answer Junior as well of who's this guy coming in and doing this on my patch. Yeah, and a bit of impatience uh, to to get past him, and I think. Nigel maybe brought kind of brought blocking to IndyCar racing. It's not that nobody had ever done it before, but Mansell was uh, a bit more elbows out than they were perhaps used to. The next race after Long Beach was the Indy 500, but before Mansell could turn his first laps at the iconic speedway, he decided to have surgery on his back. Uh, because the doctors had never seen an injury like this before, they'd initially hoped it would be able to heal itself, but it soon became clear that without intervention, this, this pouch of fluid was going to get out of control the fat and muscle that had broken away from his back was removed and the cavity that was filling up with fluid was closed up with according to the source i'm using over 140 stitches as karoon said you can kind of pick a number there based on where you look this up Mansell got dispensation to complete his rookie orientation at Indianapolis late, but even once he was in action at Indy, just 12 days after this surgery, there were doubts about if he'd be in fit enough condition to do the race. This led to a rumour that uh, Michael Andretti could be lined up to stand in for Mansell in the 500. There was no clash with the Grand Prix that year, and McLaren boss Ron Dennis was reported to have given Andretti clearance to do the race if he was called upon. Newman Haas denied this at the time. And when I asked uh, Kurt Cavan about it, he said he had a vague recollection of hearing about it, but he wasn't sure if he heard it at the time or sometime later. But his suspicion was that Newman Haas would have at least tentatively had a backup plan in mind. So, Karun, regardless of if this one is true, 
How do you think Michael Andretti would have done if he dropped back in for the 1993 Indy 500? He would have been super competitive. You know, the Lola Ford package was clearly um, a very good car on the ovals. Both um, Nigel and Mario were were strong on on the ovals throughout that season. Um, Michael was probably the the fastest driver in IndyCar racing. You'd have to say between 1989 and, and 1992. You know, he was he was incredibly quick. Won the championship, obviously, in 91. Um, had so many shoulda, woulda, couldas at the 500. And then the famous Andretti curse kicked in. So he never actually won that race. And um, yeah, I, I think Michael would have dropped in and been super competitive straight away. Uh, I am somewhat surprised to hear that Ron Dennis would have given, a, given him a green light, though, to do it, which, uh, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it doesn't sound very Ron, does it? Uh, especially early in the year when Michael wasn't getting on very well. But uh, I think, yeah, I think it would have been great. Maybe, maybe uh, Michael never won the 500 as a driver. Maybe this was the one he he was destined to win if he'd been on the grid. Uh, Mansell qualified eighth for the race, partly hindered by a qualifying draw that put him on track when conditions weren't at their best. Uh, But in the race, he worked his way forwards and by lap 70 of 200, he was in the lead. He stayed in the lead fight pretty much all race from there and was out front in the closing stages when a yellow came out for Lynn St. James's car breaking down on the approach to the pits. Mansell complained about this yellow flag years later in that Motorsport magazine interview saying the yellow came out for nothing and that it was politics because the US officials didn't want an F1 driver to win the 500. Ed, do you agree with any of that? Could they have raced on with where St. James's car stopped? No, I don't think there's a case here. She had an engine failure. She was stopped on the left approaching the pit road. Not in pit road, a recovery was required. So it's just, it just has to be. that. that there's no question about that. I get why it's frustrating, but... That's just a fact of life on on the ovals, isn't it? And I actually don't see any particular institutional reason why they would have wanted to help Emerson Fittipaldi or Ari Leyendyke win it over over Mansell. Mansell winning it would have been a huge story. So yeah, I think that's just a little bit of it's like the Michael Andretti persecution complex in F one, isn't it? Something goes against you that's not in your hands, and you decide it's some malevolent force rather than either just bad luck or potentially you doing something wrong. The bottom line is Mansell was leading. Didn't do the restart well. Lost the Indy 500. Plenty of drivers have suffered that sort of thing before. Doesn't mean there has to be anything nefarious behind it. What's really funny is um, when I joined the FIA's Drivers' Commission, the first ever meeting in 2013, Emerson was the president of the commission and Nigel was also a member of the commission. And we got talking about, you know, officiating and rules and stewarding and all that sort of stuff. And Nigel just turned around and said, let's go back to the 93 Indy 500, shall we? <laughs> yes. Emerson, tell me, why? Why? You can tell me now. Why do you think they did that? I just still don't understand it. <laughs> so, um, what was that? 2013 to 93. So, you know, he was 20, 20 years, years later still holding on to that annoyance <laughs> about the uh, <laughs> and James yellow flag. It's, it's absolutely right that yellow came out there. She's on the inside of turn four effectively we have we've seen many a car there if you spin coming out of turn four you can end up on the inside heading towards the kind of pit entry um you know the car was not in a safe place she couldn't get out safely um i think in nigel's mind it, his view is must be that there wasn't a crash so why did there need to be a yellow but you know she was she was um 
she was technically still on the circuit. So, yeah, there's the, there's no conspiracy here, unfortunately. But I love that he's still bothered by it. Um, that's a great story. So, as, uh, as Ed has already spoiled for us, uh, the late yellow set up the decisive restart where Mansell got jumped by Emerson Fittipaldi and Ari Leyendijk. After that, in his attempts to get back to them, he clouted the wall coming out of turn two and somehow got away with it. Uh, hanging on to finish third in his first Indy 500. And of course, this was his first oval race because he'd missed Phoenix. Reflecting on Indy at the end of the year, Mansell took responsibility for losing the race. And in his book, he said uh, he was a little below par after his surgery, but he admitted he messed up. He said on the restart, he didn't even know what hit him when he when they came past him. Uh, and in his live TV interview, he said, everybody cheats on the restart and I'm trying to do it by the rules and I lost the lead. He... um. I think he did say that with a slight of a smile on his face, I must say. He wrote in his book that Fitzpaldi and Leyendijk passed him like he was going backwards and that it was a harsh lesson he wished he'd been able to learn at Phoenix. Before we discuss Mansell's first crack at Indy in a bit more detail, let's hear a bit more from Kurt Cavin, who was there covering the event. Yeah, I don't think we can we can underestimate just how good that was. It was a big story, and it was important to help IndyCar uh, kind of grow in that if it needed to grow. It was obviously doing very well at that time. You, you almost hist- History almost helps you forget that Emerson Fittipaldi might, be, might have been as good as anybody has ever raced at Indy. I mean, he's, he, was, he was so experienced, early 40s at that point in his life. You know, Nigel got beat by by one of the all-time, maybe the all-time great drivers at Indy in, in Emerson. So, you know, maybe experience, inexperience cost Nigel to some degree, um, maybe more so the way that uh, Ari Leyendijk stuck it, stuck it to him in turn one. That was a, that was a big, bold move from Leyendijk's standpoint. So maybe the inexperience really cost him with, uh, with Leyendijk more so than the leader at that point. But, you know, I think what we saw from Emerson, the rest of the race, there were still, you know, enough laps left in the race that, uh, that we saw just how good Emerson's car was. Uh, and we've seen that in other years where, you know, a driver can get clean air and get the lead and, and just takes off. And Emerson did that, pulled away every lap the rest of the way. So it probably was inevitable that uh, Emerson was going to win the race. I think the inexperience is that Nigel probably could have finished second, but but uh, Leyendijk got him on that restart as well. Drivers with more experience have been beaten on restarts than you know the Nigel, but maybe just not getting his car tweaked just to the to the right point. Late in the race is probably where Emerson ha- and and Leyendijk had the advantage on him. People forget how hard he hit the wall. I uh, actually, in preparation for this conversation, went back and watched the replay of that crash, the crash that didn't happen. And he hit the right front tire so hard in turn two with like five or six laps to go that there was a flash it was a big hit, and uh, it's probably amazing that that uh, Nigel was able to finish the race because that wasn't a light contact. That was a that was a proper hit. Kareem, so near yet so far for Nigel in the end at Indy, but how impressive was he during the race as a whole? Very impressive. You know, he um, qualifying wasn't great down down in eighth place, but 
he worked his way up, worked his way up. And, you know, I think even before half distance, sort of lap, I think, 70, 75, something like that, he was in contention, wasn't he, in the, in the lead? And then pretty much stayed in that lead battle uh, all the way until the final restart. And, uh, you know, we, we look at the eyeballs that tuned in to watch Fernando's IndyCar debut, uh, sorry, Indy 500 debut. Um, and that's, that's the sort of stuff, you know, he had the world watching him. And we all came away going, Fernando's debut was horrendously impressive because he would have probably finished in the top five and, um, you know, led at a couple of points. And then you go back and put this in context of Nigel, you know, basically leading most of that race um, and, and led it until the last 20 odd laps. I think when, when was the last restart, Glenn? It was, it was within the last 20 laps, wasn't it? The one he got jumped on was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I think sensational, absolutely sensational. Yeah, the, the Alonso comparison is spot on as well. I remember when Fernando went there, I think I wrote something for Autosport saying this is modern IndyCar's Mansell moment. The obvious difference, though, is that Fernando was there as a, as a one-off and uh, they didn't get um, IndyCar didn't get the kind of year-long rub from having an F1 star there and at the front every week. Just to underscore what you were saying there, I was at Indy in 2017 for the full, I would say the full month of May, it was the fortnight of May these days, but that was the comparison that keeps that constantly was being made. People were saying the Alonso effect is like the Mansell effect. It's very much a similar thing. They hadn't known anything like it in the intervening years. So, yeah, absolutely right to draw that parallel. Now, Mansell put the lessons of Indies to good use just a week later at Milwaukee, where he once again found himself in the lead on a late restart on an oval, and he admitted he was thinking, oh, no, not again, while running behind the pace car with a handful of laps to go. Mansell said in his book, there was no way I was going to allow myself to get jumped again. But he added in his end of season video that even though he felt he jumped the restart as much as he could, second place Raul Bozell still closed up on him into turn one. So Nigel said he jumped it even more than I did. But Mansell got the job done this time, crucially claiming his first win on an oval. And he said he noticed a change in people's perspectives towards him after winning an oval race. And he felt he had more respect from the old hands of American racing. Ed, we know Mansell would go on to win a bunch more oval races. But how significant was it at the time for him to get a first oval win just to get one of them? Yeah, it's very important, not just because it's the landmark first oval win, but because of what it followed, the Phoenix crash, the lost chance at Indy, that was something that made it very easy to spin the narrative that people were preordaining that you struggle on the ovals. But actually, then he went to win it, went on to win at Milwaukee straight after Indy. A really historic circuit. That one actually predates Indianapolis, a hectic one-mile track. Very, very challenging. It just showed there was no problem with ovals. And in fact, there was never really a problem with ovals because from the moment he first started testing, I think Phoenix was the first place he he tested because you could test at Firebird in Phoenix in relatively close proximity to get the uh, the road and, uh, and ovals. He, he was properly quick and yeah it was the form on those tracks that underpinned his championship and yeah just as an aside it was interesting obviously Raul Bazell was very strong in the Dick Simon Lola on the uh, on the ovals and I remember some years ago in in Sao Paulo I had dinner with Raul Bazell and we're talking through his career and that kind of thing and he said one of the things that that they'd worked out was a little front wing trick which everyone wanted to know but the front wings were always covered and people had tried to find out. I can't remember exactly which race it was. It may have been at Milwaukee. may have been a later one. But basically, they've been trying to work out they need to get a close look at the wing. 
And Mansell just decided he was fed up with this. So when the cars were lined up, he just walked over to Bozell's car, tore off the cover so they could see it, <laughs> which is obviously completely unacceptable. But it was a very Mansell-esque solution to uh, letting his team get a bit of a look at what they were doing with the uh, the Lola. Yeah, that's superb. And uh, cool Duracell livery as well. We've got Duracell a sponsor in F1 now with Williams. Next, if they ever need to do a special Duracell livery, uh, you can take some inspiration from Raoul Bozell. In the, in the 90s, Mansell was on pole next time out on the streets of Detroit, where he was in the middle of one of the biggest controversies of the season. Mansell got jumped again by Fittipaldi at the start. Obviously, we had rolling starts in IndyCar as well as the restarts. And uh, so despite Mo being second on the grid, he was clearly ahead when they took the green flag. Newman Haas tried to call for a restart. And when that was rejected, Mansell's engineer, Jim McGee, was shouting at officials in the pit lane to tell race director Wally Dollenbach that they were protesting. That footage exists in one of the Mansell videos um, and it's, it's brilliant. Jim McGee just yelling at an official. Fittipaldi was eventually given a stop-go penalty, which uh, his Penske team were furious about and they later protested. Officials later clarified that MO was penalised because he was a car and a half ahead of Mansell at the start. Ex-Penske driver, the legendary Rick, Rick Mears, who still works for the team today as an advisor, said he'd never heard of that before. And he said if it was in the rules, then the pole man could just ease off before every start and get the other front row starter penalised. Mansell had spent a long time before the race discussing the start procedure in the driver's briefing, where he'd been told as long as the other person's not more than a car's length in front, he can jump the start, which Mansell called an unfortunate grey area. So, Ed, uh, I know like me and, and probably like Karun as well, we've, we've all watched um, this season back as much as we can. What did you make of this at Detroit? Mansell, to be honest, Mansell seemed to be at the centre of jump start and rolling start debates every week. Yeah, he clearly had a, a big problem with the way they were being done. And it does all come down to the arguments that were had off track. And the accounts seem to be completely different between the Mansell side and the Penske side about what was said and what the regs said, etc. So very, very tricky. I mean, I get Mansell's point here because in the, the race coverage, they show the, the kind of helicopter view of it. And yeah, Fittipaldi is, is ahead and does get the jump on him. But... I think there was also some Mansell gameplay going on here. I can't see it in the footage, but the reports from the Times said that there was some Mansell waving going on as well to the starter as the initial point of protest. Um, I couldn't actually see that in the footage, but I could also see why I wouldn't be able to. So, yeah, th there was a bit going on there. And, of course, yeah, Tracy got ahead as well because of, uh, uh, of that start not working well. I, I don't really understand why Mansell didn't just take it and if you can't beat them, join them approach to it. It was clear that the starts and the restarts were working in a certain way and he didn't seem to lean into it I guess there is a, there is that that thing that's I think he always had quite a keen sense of what justice was and the correct way to do things and I think he probably one of his few mistakes that season was perhaps hanging on a little bit too hard to what to do at the at the restarts so yeah a very very strange one but yeah you can't have that car length thing because yeah as Mia said you you can play games so yeah just um I think ultimately the blame really lies with Mansell for not making the most and getting on top of the restarts at this point. But yeah, Detroit was the point where it really, really came to a peak and the general reaction in IndyCar was that it was a bit odd. Yeah, I think Nigel just couldn't get his head around the fact that it was one of those things where IndyCar didn't have a set rule or procedure and everyone over there was fine with it. And then Nigel came in from F1 where even back then, by comparison, everything was regulated. And I think he was going, why isn't there a set, why isn't there a set rule here? 
Um, and it did continue. Uh, if you watch the longer uh, Nigel Mansell IndyCar Diary videos where he, he talks a lot more before um, and after every race, there's a few more races where he's on the grid saying we've had a long chat about the restart, uh, the start procedure again. So, yeah, he made sure it dominated the driver's briefings and none of the other drivers could understand why he cared so much. But after all that fuss, Mansell's race then ended when he was forced offline by a recovery truck that was touring around the circuit and uh, Mansell's car slid into into the wall, fortunately at low speed. He called that incident extraordinary afterwards, saying, I've been had off by a lot of drivers, but I've never been had off by a wrecker truck. That was an experience I didn't like. Now, Kareem, 30 years is a long time ago, but how scary is it now to look back at the footage and see these recovery vehicles were driving around the track under racing conditions, you know, IndyCar's famed for having full course yellows, but at street races in particular, they were sent out sometimes to deal with incidents under under local yellows and the drivers were just trusted to avoid them. It's madness really, isn't it? <laughs> when you look at the modern um, safety standards to what racing is run at, it, it does seem like complete madness. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I watched it back last night you know, just to try and, and see if it was a full course yellow. Because I, I remember the accident and I remember that, you know, quote that he's just that you've just read out. Um, but I was convinced it was under full course yellow. It's only when I rewatched it last night, I realized it wasn't, which, uh, yeah, seems pretty bonkers, really. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Mansell picked up podium finishes at Portland and Cleveland as Penske grabbed the upper hand on road circuits in the middle of the year. But we have to take a moment to look back at Mansell's battle with Fittipaldi at Cleveland. Lots of people mentioned this in the, in the first thing that comes to mind question. They were fighting over second place behind Paul Tracy and swapped places five times in six laps. Go and find this battle if you've never never seen it. It's on, it's on YouTube. Just put in Mansell Fittipaldi Cleveland 1993. M.O. won the battle in the end, spoiler, and uh, he later said he'd never had a scrap that close in his entire career. And despite losing out, Mansell loved it too. He said it showed IndyCar at its best and he called it terrific. Ed, in terms of on-track action, was this the highlight of the season? Yeah, it was. It really showcased what IndyCar could offer, actually. And had I not chosen my slightly vague one at the start, it would have been this battle. And of course, it's kind of a, a Dijon 79 equivalent, isn't it? Because it's this legendary battle for P2. Paul Tracy's up the road. No one remembers him. He's playing the role of Jean-Pierre Jabouille in this one. <laughs> and it's just brilliant. And it's funny because I actually, um, every time I rewatch this, and I rewatched it obviously quite recently to prepare for this, but I also rewatched the 93 season a few years ago just because that's what I do. And you always think, oh, I bet this battle isn't as good as I remember it, but it was. And and that was really the the, the point. It was the calling card for IndyCar. I think this is what you can get. And that that track at Cleveland, actually, the, the, the airport track was absolutely brilliant. I think it's a real shame it's not in use anymore for IndyCar because it was just brilliant because I particularly love the fact that track tended to cause first corner collisions despite being the widest track in the known universe which was always uh, always brilliant so yeah that this was absolutely pure indycar and the fact of course it was mansell at the center of it 
tells you everything you need to know about the impact he had. It's, it's the Mansell and IndyCar experience in microcosm. Yeah, superb. Great track. IndyCar themselves still get constantly, uh, I think they get barrages of claims from fans to, to bring that circuit back as well. It's very simple, but very cool. Mansell had a, a forgettable weekend in Toronto where he suffered his only mechanical failure of the season in a race uh, where he was off the pace anyway, which he said was, was a bit of fortune, really. But he lost the championship lead to Fittipaldi, then hit back with two more oval wins at Michigan and New Hampshire. Newman Haas were utterly dominant at Michigan. Uh, Mansell led Mario Andretti home for a 1-2 and no one else was in the same race. Uh, but Mansell was feeling ill in the car due to a gastric bug and was getting aspirin put in his drinks bottle at pit stops. And at the end of the 500 mile race, he could barely get out of the car. He said in his Victory Lane interview that he'd never felt so rough. And in his end of season video, he said he'd had to spend three days in bed after that, getting rehydrated because he'd not been able to take on any any food or fluids in the build-up to the race. Meanwhile, Mario Andretti, 14 years Mansell's senior, although in fairness, he wasn't sick that weekend, uh, looks on somewhat bemused after the race and Mario doesn't have a bead of sweat on him. Um, Mansell said, having narrowly missed out on winning the first 500-mile race of the year at Indy, he was just pleased to win one of them. Corinne, you mentioned Michigan already. Michigan isn't Indianapolis, but it's a fearsome track in its own right. Was this, among all the other wins, in a way, was this a, a statement victory to go to one of America's big super speedways and dominate? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, it, it was such a fantastic race to watch as well. You know, the wheel-to-wheel battle between them. You know, the, the, the Newman Haas Lola Ford package was clearly the one to beat. You know, they, they locked out um, the first two places on the grid and then in the race, it was pretty much a two-horse race. Um, I think there was a point when Nigel was leading the race by a lap even um, with the way the pit stop cycles worked out. So um, it, it was a, a super, super race to watch. Um, but for Nigel, I think to establish himself as the top dog in the team, you know, yes, he had this wave of tension and this wave of momentum behind him, um, which I think had already put Mario's nose out of joint quite a lot by that stage. Um <laughs> But for him to to take that win, um, you know, on a on a super speedway, was was massively important. I think you know, winning in Milwaukee was was great, but I think you know, winning on a super speedway against the established IndyCar stars was a was a massive statement to make. Then back on the smaller one mile oval at New Hampshire, Mansell came out on top in a race that he called one of the best of his career. It came down to an epic fight in the closing stages with the Penske's of Fittipaldi and Paul Tracy. And Mansell finally made the decisive pass for the win four laps from the end. Uh, Again, if you're not going to watch the whole season, go and find the end of the New Hampshire race. It's incredible. Afterwards, Mansell said this was pure racing at its best, adding, I've been wheel to wheel with Ayrton Senna at 200 miles per hour and it doesn't even come close to what we've done today. Ed, is is that hyperbole from Mansell or was this sort of racing something that F1 could never compete with from a pure entertainment standpoint? Yeah, obviously F1 has its uh, has its own spectacular form of racing, but obviously you don't get this form in Formula One. I think there's an element of hyperbole in saying this is way better or whatever, but it's completely different. These one mile ovals, really super busy. There's cars everywhere. A proper a proper fight with Paul Tracy as well. Paul Tracy described it as white knuckle racing, and this win it, it's not Mansell's most famous IndyCar win, but I think it's absolutely his best. Uh, 
just when you look at what they're having to do to win that race, because first you've got the element of the traffic, because there's constant traffic, and we can hark back to Hungary 1989 recently talked about, because who was it who was being lapped when Mansell made the decisive move? Stephanie Hansen. So you get all these opportunities presented by the back markers. But Mansell, I think, also talks about another dimension of it, because he, he he talks about how you have to work out, you know, your gear, what gear you're going to be in, the rev level, how you can avoid hitting the pop-off valve, which regulate, regulates a turbo, so you've got the power when you need it. So it's all these factors to put together. So you're not just driving the car and trying to get ahead, you're balancing up all of this. And that's the reason why I think it's such a good win. Not only was it such a late pass for victory, but also he had to balance up everything to make it work. And the fact Paul Tracy, after the race, to say, well, that was just a brilliant, serious racing, even though he'd been defeated, I think tells you everything you want to know about that. That was an oval masters victory. And I think New Hampshire 93 deserves to be remembered much, much more than it actually is. Mansell took a safe second behind Tracy at Road America uh, in one of what I'd say is probably the only uneventful races of the year and then came through a tough weekend in Vancouver to finish sixth. But he beat Fittipaldi both times. So with three races to go, he was 32 points ahead of his main challenger. That meant he had his first shot at clinching the title at Mid-Ohio and Mansell admitted in his book that this weighed heavily on my mind all weekend. He said it was extraordinary to be in that position 12 months on from announcing he was quitting F1 at Monza and only eight months after trying an IndyCar for the first time. But it wasn't to be at Mid-Ohio. Mansell took pole but clashed with Tracy at the start. He said Tracy chopped him from the outside, or Tracy shrugged it off and claimed Mansell tagged him. And unfortunately, there's not really a good angle of this, so it's quite hard to judge. Mansell limped back to the pits to get his damage repaired, then tried and failed to get out before the pace car came around, so he was penalised for overtaking it as he rejoined the track. He eventually battled back to 12th, scoring one point, and he said one of the things he liked about the series was that even if you were two laps down like he was at one point, you still had a worthwhile result to push for because points went down so far. Tracy had carried on in the lead after their collision, but he later crashed out, ending his own slim championship chances, that left the way clear for Fittipaldi to win the race, closing the gap to Mansell to 13 points with two races to go. But Corinne, are you surprised to hear Nigel say that thoughts of the championship were actually weighing heavily on him by this stage? That strikes me as not the sort of thing you hear from a racing driver very often. No, I'm not surprised. You know, I mean, look, there was uh, a great deal of pressure in some ways, you know, as much as he battered off Early in the season, they're saying I'm I'm just a an outsider, you know, with a long shot. The reality was he very quickly became he, he was the story. He he was the single biggest story, um, arguably of IndyCar racing for decades. Right, you know, we that 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 whole arrival and the, the year that unfolded. Um, so. I think there was a degree of pressure, you know, there was a degree of expectation and pressure on him that he he had to deliver. And, it, you know, in some ways he was holding up the honour of F1 and European racing, wasn't he, um, against the, the IndyCar North American establishment. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm not surprised that he, you know, he, he felt that bit of pressure. But But also good on him for admitting it and being honest about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing, maybe. it's the, the surprise is perhaps that for once someone's being honest and saying, yeah, that, that was really difficult. 
Uh, at the next round at the Nazareth Oval, so the penultimate race, there was some big driver market news. Michael Andretti's comeback with the Ganassi team was announced for 1994, and Newman Haas signed a two-year extension with Mansell that would keep him in the series until at least the end of 1995. At the press conference announcing the deal, Mansell said he liked the close competition in IndyCar and how many different drivers could win races. He also said, I've been intrigued by IndyCar for a long time. I thought I might do one year, not like it, and then retire for good. But I had an open mind. I came across and I've enjoyed it. I just love racing like this. Now, Ed, we obviously know Mansell never saw out that two-year extension in full as he went back to F1 for his doomed McLaren stint in 1995 instead. Do you think it's a shame he didn't stick around in IndyCar racing for longer? He obviously had an unsuccessful title defence in 94 and then he was gone. There's part of me that thinks it was a shame, but it was also such a great story that he came, saw, conquered, had the bad season, got landed on by Dennis Vitolo, played around in F1 again, then did the ludicrous McLaren move. So it's all just part of the Mansell legend, isn't it? So I think the fact he had this profound impact, burned so brightly and then faded, it was really one season plus the terrible 94 year that adds to the story and it's difficult to imagine his place almost in subsequent years I mean it would be fascinating how would he have gone I guess it would have been Mansell and Michael Andretti at Newman Haas in in 1995 because they wouldn't have needed to get Paul Tracy on what was a a de facto loan uh, spell for a year because I think Penske kept an option on him and he went back but anyway he just very much encapsulates this time he's an ignition point for for IndyCar and so perhaps it was better he wasn't hanging around but then again not only would we probably be having an even longer episode if uh, he had hung around for a few more years? But who knows what he'd have done in the, in the subsequent seasons? It might have been when the package was good, he was back to winning races and fighting for championships, or or maybe not. But I quite like the the fact it's such a a clear window in history, and I think it's very Mansell esque actually the way it all went. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I. I'm gutted he wasn't there in 95. 95 is a great season. I'm not saying that because Jacques Villeneuve won the championship. It was so competitive that year. I think IndyCar at that point was enjoying the, the, the boom that Mansell had started. And as you say there, Ed, Newman Haas were competitive again in 95. He'd have had a good car if he stuck around. He'd have won more races, even if he couldn't have won another championship. So I think it's a shame he didn't get to to stay, stick around, even just for that extra year, and, and not have left IndyCar racing kind of under a cloud but uh that's a story for another time we're talking about the good stuff here and on track mansell clinched the championship in style at nazareth uh, as as points leader he started on pole after qualifying was rained out and after slipping back in the early laps with poor handling his car came alive after 30 laps and he romped away to seal the title with a win at the chequered flag, there's a, there's a hilarious exchange between Mansell and his engineer, Jim McGee, as Mansell couldn't get his head around the fact that he was champion. We'll, we'll try to play you the clip of this. Bear in mind, this is taken from early 90s radio communications, so it's not as clear as some of the radio we hear in racing today, but have a listen. Great job, Nigel Green. The championship, that's it. We did it. Is Emerson finished? What a deal! Emerson finished. Emerson finished uh, fifth. You're the champ. You're the champ. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic! We've won the championship. Yes. You won it. You won it. 
everybody has just done a fantastic job, I can't thank you enough. We've definitely won the championship as well, yeah? Hey, great job, guys. Explaining all that confusion, Mansell said in his book, on a slowing down lap, my brain struggled to work out the maths of the points situation. In my ears, I could hear Jim McGee saying, congratulations, you've done it, but I could not take in his meaning. I wanted to know where Emerson had finished. McGee kept saying, you've done it, you're the champion, but it wasn't registering. Then all of a sudden it sunk in that I was the champion. Once it had sunk in, uh, in a press conference afterwards, Mansell said his feelings were exactly the same, if not better, than when he won the F1 title the year before. He admitted that in F1 with Williams, he had a lot of things going my way, with obviously his car advantage, uh, and he said not smashing his back up at the second race of the year. And uh, he said what made the IndyCar title so special was how close the competition was. He thanked uh, team owners Paul Newman, yes, that Paul Newman, and Carl Haas for making... Uh, a very, very special dream come true. And he said it was one of the happiest times he'd ever had in his life. But Karu, let's pick up on the comparison to the F1 title there. Was this more impressive than winning the World Championship in 1992? Yeah, I think it was more impressive. You know, I think, look, the FW14B we all know was arguably the most dominant F1 car in terms of lap time delta uh, to the rest of the field. So... Um, he, he sort of sauntered to that title and had it wrapped up by August, didn't he? Um, you could say, you know, he deserved a championship back in 86, um, possibly 87, possibly 91. So I'm not begrudging the fact that he, he won that championship. Absolutely not. Um, but I think what he did in 93, for me, was more impressive. To, to go into a completely new form of racing, completely alien type of racing with the ovals, um, against strong competitive drivers who had been at it for a long, long time um, and recovered from a, a very serious back injury, I think it was a more impressive feat. Yeah, I think the F1 Championship was more a culmination, wasn't it? A, a slow burn towards that. He could have won championships before, but this was just an absolutely dedicated, focused attempt to do something very, very, very difficult. And I think he was very motivated to win it. That's why I think winning the championship was so important to him. He loves the fact that he held the championships at the same time for about a week or so before Prost clinched the 93 F1 championship. And just, I think, to do it the way he did, relying on the oval form primarily, producing some great performances on other tracks as well, I think was just so spectacular and, and exciting that this is one of the great championship wins and against a very, very high quality field of established greats and some really, really stellar young talents like Paul Tracy. Yeah, I think it's more impressive. Um, as you guys have said, he, he'd earned the F1 championship and the advantage that came here. But yes, he had a good car in 93, particularly on the ovals, but he didn't have the car advantage. The advantage wasn't the same. The racing was more chaotic. You had you know, full course cautions that could close the race up, that could flip a race on its head. There were lots more variables here and he had no experience of the tracks and he didn't know his opposition and, and the style of racing. So to go in and do what he did, it is one of those things where I think only he could have done it. I know Ayrton Senna tested a car that winter as well. Imagine if we had Mansell and Senna in IndyCar at the same time and I'm sure he'd have taken to it as well but yeah for Nigel to do it it's just yeah it's 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 a perfect Mansell story isn't it to go over there and and conquer uh in his view the world he does he does call himself a double world champion because I think it was called the IndyCar World Series at the time 
Let's uh, let's discuss a couple more things before we go here. We're not going to bother with the season finale at Laguna Seca where uh, he eventually withdrew with an injured wrist after a couple of clashes with backmarkers. But firstly, let's hear from Kurt Cavin one more time as he shared with us what he felt was the most impressive element of Mansell's phenomenal season. I think the most remarkable thing about Nigel's season in 93 not the Indy 500, although that was spectacular. I mean, you think about this. He won at Milwaukee. He won at Michigan. He won at New Hampshire. He won at Nazareth. Those are the smallest oval tracks on the circuit and the biggest. Um, you know, Michigan is as fast and as, as uh, bad as, as any racetrack in the world. And, and to have won all those different places – you would have expected him to clean up on the long beaches and the street circuits and the permanent road courses, but it was the ovals that he was so good at. So I think uh, I think that's the thing that, despite his his uh, maybe frustration with the restarts, the fact he was so good on the ovals is is really astonishing. Before we move on, I just want to say a huge thank you to Kurt. He was very generous with his time. And as I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to hear the full conversation I had with him about what it was like covering Mansell's year, and in particular his first Indy 500, that will be available uncut for the Race Members Club. Now, Mansell won every oval race after the Indy 500, and he didn't win another non-oval race after that debut success at Surfers Paradise in March. Mansell was asked about this by Gordon Kirby for Autosport after the season, and he said he felt it was down to Penske having the stronger car on road courses. He pointed out that at Portland and Cleveland, he was the only Lola runner finishing on the same lap as the Penske's. So while things were magical on the ovals, he was happy to have picked up four podiums on road courses. In his book, Mansell said Penske put in a massive development programme to turn a good car into a great car, particularly on the road and street courses, while Lola's development was destabilised by its chief designer, Bruce Ashmore, leaving to join Reynard, which was coming in for 1994. Ed, do you think Mansell was right that Penske simply had the better car for the road and street circuits? Yeah, I think he was. And that's not a, a Mansell-only view. That's pretty much something that all the Lola users that year in the 93 Lola expressed. It was just the, the way it was. You have to factor in the engines as well. Uh, obviously, Penske Chevrolets, the Mansell had the Ford XB C-spec engine. And it, we saw Gallas win a couple of races with the Lola, but with a Lola Chevy, I think there was a slight power delivery advantage there that made, meant they weren't at quite such a big advan- disadvantage on traction on the street courses. But... The picture across the 93 Lolas was that the Penske had the advantage on, on slower corners, better turning, better mid-corner in particular. So, yeah, I think that was pretty clear. Lola did make a few changes later on with suspension that improved the performance a little bit, and they tried to build on that with a 94 car, not very successfully. But it was a, a longer car as well. They still had a, a longitudinal gearbox, whereas Penske had a transverse gearbox, which I think they introduced before 93, in fact. But uh, Lola went to that for 94 as well. So yeah, th- that's the fundamental reason for the picture of the season. The Lola was not the car to have for, on those sorts of tracks. The Penske Chevy absolutely was. And Mansell is right. Some of those performances when he was basically the only person taking the fight to the Penske's on the street tracks really, really were mighty. But it just put that extra pressure, didn't it, on Mansell on the ovals and he knew it. 
because it was only really at surface where I think the Chevy engine was a little bit too thirsty at that point in the season. He was able to, uh, able to beat them. So it just makes that season all the more remarkable because those whole conditions should have played to Mansell's weaknesses, if you like. So it makes the title win all the more impressive. So there you go. If Senna had been there, because obviously he tested for Penske, he'd have been in the best car on the road courses. So you'd have had Senna winning the road course races and Mansell winning the ovals. Um, we were robbed <laughs> of that classic battle. There was another theme to a lot of Mansell's interviews after the season and his reflections in his book. He made a lot of references to proving his critics and doubters wrong. In his book, Nigel said, I was happy because no one could dispute what had been achieved. Even my harshest critics were forced to accept the testimony of the record books. And to my mind, that was enough to silence all of them. I felt a huge weight lifted from my shoulders. All my life, I had been striving to prove to the world that I had the talent to be one of the best drivers in the world. Now I had nothing to prove anymore. No one could take my success away from me. Corinne, are you surprised that it weighed on Nigel's mind so much that there were critics and doubters out there? No, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, for all his his successes, you know, Nigel always seemed to have these deep insecurities about how people questioned his greatness or how how brilliant he was. And I guess some of it, you know, is because he he was in that era against Prost, Senna, and PK, where you know, for so much of that period, they were the world champions and he wasn't, um, you know, he, he, it took him till 92, which is what, 11 years after PK won his. Uh, and he was the, you know, in his own head, perhaps he thought he was the fourth of that four, right? Whereas actually he was just as fast. You know, if you consider the fact that he was carrying an extra 10, 15 kilos of, of weight in that era, um, you know, that's three tenths a lap, every lap. And he was, just as fast as a Prost or a Senna um, and faster than a PK, arguably, most of their time together. So, um, unfortunately, you know, Nigel had these deep-rooted insecurities. Um, so, no, I'm not surprised um, from that. That's a good point, actually, that there were times when we've done stuff around 92 where he's, he said how much it bothered him that you know, when Edson Senna had a dominant McLaren, it was fine. But then Nigel Mansell's got a dominant Williams and suddenly everything needs to be changed about F1 and we can't have dominant teams. So, yeah, that, that sort of stuff. And and I think you're right. It comes back to who his rivals were and uh, it was in his head. But lastly, I want to pick up on a, a little almost throwaway line from Nigel's book. Uh, bear in mind, this was released uh, in sort of mid to late 1995. He said... I had pulled off the crazy dream of winning back-to-back Formula One and IndyCar titles. No one had ever done that before, and I wonder how long it might be before it happens again. Uh, I'm going to ask you both this, but we'll come to Karun first. Obviously, you mentioned this at the start, that that Nigel said this. So we're 28 years on from when he made the comment, uh, based on when the book came out, wondering when it would happen again. I'm going to change the question. Do you think it will ever happen again? I think it might happen. Um, I can tell you want to say yes. You want to find a way to say yes. Don't yeah, you? I want to say yes, but no. The truth is, I can't. You know, Jack uh, <laughs> Villeneuve came close to me in '96, doing it the other way around. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I just can't see it happening because if you're a reigning Formula One world champion now, you're not going to quit. I mean, what happened to back in '92 was effectively you know, to draw a modern day analogy for people who weren't around that era was Max Verstappen, 
leaving Red Bull because Red Bull have signed Lewis Hamilton and have basically said, you know, we don't need you anymore, Max. This is the price, um, you know, and, and Max goes off to IndyCar racing. That is basically what happened. Yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah, and straight away, the chances of anyone doing that move are so small. The chance of Verstappen saying, oh, I fancy doing IndyCar now and phoning up Chip Ganassi and going into it. The chance of him even being in a position to do it are very, very small in that you make the move and then you still actually have to do the hard work of winning the championship. I'm sure Max Verstappen would be perfectly capable of winning an IndyCar championship. He's an all-time great. But doing it straight away, doing it back-to-back, really, really tough. And you've got to have the desire to do it on top of it. And the other way around, just as difficult, even if you chucked Alex Pelot, say, into a Red Bull next year, he'd have to beat Max Verstappen to do it. Possible, but pretty unlikely. I can't see him getting in there. So anyway, but I think also there's another dimension to this. And it's it's jumping back to what I said at the start, the ability of a driver to have such a profound impact on something. I know I'm, this is a, a fairly broad interpretation of the question because Mansell did transform IndyCar in the eyes of the wider world. He brought it to the attention. And I don't think it's possible to do that now because the world has changed. As I said, at that point, you could read a little bit about it. You'd know some of the top names, but it was very, very hard to watch. And you don't have that now because IndyCar is quite accessible. Most championships have a reasonable level of, of accessibility. So there's nothing so alien as well. So also that whole wider picture can't happen. It was, it was a very specific moment, what Mansell did not just winning them back to back, but also the wider impact. And that's why we're still talking about this story today. I hope it happens again, just in terms of the back-to-back nature of it. Wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe, you know, if motorsport keeps going for long enough and IndyCar and F1 continue to be a thing, I guess if you do it long enough, there's a chance. But it was extraordinary then. It's even less likely now. Yeah, I, like like both of you, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to come up with a, a case for saying yes to this question, but the answer is no. It's, it's 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 not it's not gonna happen. It's good. Hopefully, we'll we'll keep seeing uh, F1 drivers like Roman Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson going over to IndyCar and they and they can do well. But we're not gonna see an F1 champion drop out of F1, ditch F1, go straight into IndyCar and at win on his debut from pole and and yeah, fight for the Indy 500. And it's 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 if you. If you take the description I gave at the start of this episode and and you didn't know the context, you'd say that's that's a fake storyline that you're making up. It, it, it's, it's genuinely unbelievable and it, it's not going to happen again. So uh, we'll leave it there for our first venture across the Atlantic into IndyCar racing. I hope it's not the last. So uh, if we get lots of good feedback about this episode and it does just as well as our usual F1 subjects, then we'll definitely revisit another story or two from Kart's glory years we will have give them a bit of an f1 theme still and there are plenty of ways to do that thanks to karun and ed for helping us go back 30 years this was an incredible season and it was great fun going back and re-watching it all to research this if you've never seen this season before or even if you have but you've not done it for a while uh, firstly look for mansell and newman haas on youtube for an overview of his season or nigel mansell's indycar diary if you want a more detailed version that was released in several parts. Every race from that year can be found without too much searching uh, in full on YouTube. Um, they're all brilliant to watch. If you want to get started, just search for CART, C-A-R-T, 1993, round one, and you'll find one of the channels that has them all. And uh, go and get stuck in. 
we'll be back to all things F1 for our next episode. And we're finally doing one of, uh, what I think I can say is our most requested race, where not a lot happened at all. So it's of course the 1998 Belgian Grand Prix. The Athletic.